Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you so much. Take your Bible and join me in the book of Romans, the 15th chapter. Romans chapter 15, and we're going to give our attention to verses 14 through 24. Our message this morning, Marks of a Great Commission People. Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 14 and studying through verse 24. Paul writes, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written... To whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while." June of 1979 marked what historians call the beginning of the conservative resurgence. It was a back-to-the-Bible movement where Southern Baptists once again proclaimed boldly their commitment to an inerrant and infallible Bible. But this past June, the year 2009 in Louisville, Kentucky, there was another movement launched known by the designation the conservative or the Great Commission resurgence building on the conservative resurgence. If the conservative resurgence was a back to the Bible movement, the Great Commission resurgence was a to the nations movement. In other words, the conservative resurgence where we returned to the authority of the Bible was never only about the Bible. It was always about taking that message of the Bible, the gospel embedded in the scriptures and getting that gospel to the nations. Why was there a conservative resurgence? Because we need to return to the Bible. Why was there the need and is there the need for a great commission research? Because we need to get the gospel to the nations. The fact is business as usual is not working very well today. Southern Baptists in particular have become stagnant and plateaued. The fact of the matter is we have been losing ground across America and around the globe for decades. 
This past year, we lost members for the second year in a row, and we baptized the fewest number of persons we have baptized since 1987. It was the fourth consecutive year of decline in baptisms. It now takes 47 Southern Baptists to baptize one person for Christ. I have the honor and the responsibility of serving on the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force. Through our research and with the assistance of folks at Lifeway Research, we've discovered that for every dollar that is placed in an offering plate in a Southern Baptist church, two cents ever makes it outside the borders of America. Ninety-eight cents on the dollar never leaves America. The vast majority of it stays in your church. The rest of it stays in America. And the fact of the matter is that is not going to reach the nations with the gospel. The fact is, Johnny Hunt was right. We needed something that would shock the system. We needed a wake-up call. You say, but shocking the system can be painful. Yes, but it can also sometimes be necessary. Furthermore, we have biblical warrant for shocking the system. After all, Paul says here in verse 15, I have written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. In other words, Paul would say getting the gospel to the nations is something we should never hesitate to be bold about. And so what is it that marks a Great Commission people? What is it that marks a people that really does have this nation and the nations on their heart? I believe there are at least five things from this text of Scripture that will guide us into thinking more clearly about what it means to be a Great Commission people. Number one, we will be focused on the nations. Paul begins with a note of confidence. If you note there in verse 14, he's emphatic. He says, I myself. And then he says, here's some things I know about the church at Rome. He says, first of all, they are full of goodness. That is, they're characterized by moral excellence in their lives as a result of the gospel doing its work in their lives. He says again in verse 14, I know that you are filled with all knowledge. Now, I believe he has primarily in mind the knowledge of the gospel, though I would agree with those who say he believes that the knowledge they have is of the gospel and all those things that emanate from the gospel as well. But the bottom line or the the main point is this. Paul understood that knowledge matters. Paul understood that theology matters. Paul understood that what we know and what we believe really does matter. It has become something of a mantra for me where I say over and over and over and over and over again, I believe you cannot be a good theologian without also being a good missionary. And I also believe you cannot be a good missionary without also being a good theologian. I believe that missions and theology clearly in the Bible are always wedded together. They always go together. Again, it is good for us to be reminded that the greatest theologian who ever lived was also the greatest missionary who ever lived. His name was Jesus. And the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived was also the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived. And his name was 
Paul. I like what David Livingston said. God had only one son and he made him a missionary. And so the Bible says that they were full of goodness. The Bible says they are filled with all knowledge. Paul says also in verse 14 that he is confident that they are able to mutually admonish and challenge one another. The idea of admonishing means to rethink. It means to reconsider certain important issues, even if they might be painful. In other words, to admonish someone is to challenge them to sometimes rethink what they're doing and make some hard, difficult, and painful decisions. Remember, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6 reminds us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Paul says in verse 15, Nevertheless, because of the grace given to me by God, I can also be bold once again to challenge you to rethink some things. And in particular, look at verse 16, to challenge them to remember and to recall and to think that the nations are to become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do not miss the Trinitarian impulse of that verse. Paul uses priestly language here. And in essence, Paul says, bringing the Gentiles to faith in Christ and presenting them to God is my priestly offering. Paul is consumed as you read his letters with the nations. Here it is translated Gentiles, but it is the Greek word ethne. Uh, the word occurs ten times in Romans chapter 15. I don't like the translation Gentiles in our context. I would much prefer the translation nations. And so Paul says presenting the nations to Jesus is an offering acceptable to God and set apart by the Holy Spirit. That's why he's a minister of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says in verse 15, I am ministering the gospel. I believe Paul had ringing in his ears what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, that we are to go into all of the world and make disciples of all the ethne, all the nations. In other words, I think the phrase untold million still untold was a burden that Paul could not escape nor unload from his soul. Now, let's raise a question and answer it. What do we mean by the nations? What do we mean by the ethne? Well, I like what is done at our uh, missions uh, headquarters in Richmond. Uh, They prefer to use the phrase people groups, people groups. They're, They're talking about those who have a distinct language. Those who have a distinct culture, those who have in and of themselves their own unique identity. So question, how many ethne are there in the world today? That's question number one. And question number two is how many ethne remain unreached? Well, I checked this morning online with the Joshua Project, and I discovered that at least as of this morning, there are 16,000. 349, one more has been added since last week, 16,349 ethne that comprise the 6.7 billion people on planet Earth. And today there are at least 6,647 that are unreached. And missiologists will say that we are on good ground in estimating that there are at least 1.6 billion people who never even one time heard the name of Jesus. That is one-fourth of the world's population. When you bring alongside of that those that basically have a limited 
gospel witness, have limited access to the gospel. The number jumps as you can go across and look in our Great Commission Center at the World Evangelism Clock there on the wall. 3.4 billion people, half of the world's population today, has either no witness or a very limited access to the gospel. Many people today are consumed about their concern with America, and we should be concerned about America. The fact is, according to our North American Mission Board, three out of every four persons in North America is lost. That makes America the fourth or the fifth largest lost nation in the world. And brothers and sisters, this is just unacceptable. Business as usual is not working. And business as usual can not continue. And I like what the missiologist J. Oswald Smith said. The supreme task of the church is the evangelization of the world. No one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had an opportunity to hear it at least once. And I believe we must stay focused on what he asked us to stay focused on. That is the nations. And that means, brothers and sisters, we must not get sidetracked by some good things that push to the sidelines and kick to the curb the best things. After all, Carl F. H. Henry, the wonderful theologian, was right. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And therefore, we must be focused on the nations. Number two. We must be and will be a Christ-centered people. That's the theme of verse 16 through verse 18. Paul never lost the wonder of his salvation. Paul never got over the fact that God both saved him and then called him to preach the gospel to the nations. In fact, Paul's passion was, as Philippians 3.10 says, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I believe Paul would have hardly amened the words of Jesus in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In Romans 15, Paul referred to Jesus no less than five times. He says, as you see there in verse 16, that we are his ministers. He says again in verse 17, his only desire is to glory or boast in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says, I will not dare to say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience to the faith. In other words, Paul was consumed with Christ and that people would know Christ. Paul also never got over the reality that heaven and hell are real and that no one escapes apart from faith in Christ. And so I believe this. If we're going to be focused on the nations, it will be because we become a radically Christ-centered people. We talk about his lordship, but no, his lordship will become a reality. He will take hold of our lives. He will control our lives. All that we are, our total being, how we think, how we act, how we live, will be radically, radically different because Jesus is really, truly reigning as Lord in our lives. Henry Martin died at the age of 31. A missionary to China and Persia, but he got it right. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Him, 
the more intensely missionary we will become. I have a prayer that I continually voice before the Lord. Hasn't answered it yet, the best I can tell, but it doesn't keep me from continuing to pray it. My prayer is simply this, Lord, make Southern Baptists a Jesus people. Make Southern Baptists a, a Jesus people. Make us so much like the Lord Jesus that when people think about us, and I assure you, brothers and sisters, right now, when most people think of Southern Baptists, they don't think, there goes the Jesus people. That's not the opinion they have of us. You say, well, they have false caricatures. They have false impressions. I don't care. It's still their caricature. It's still their impression. It's still what they think. But would to God that they would think, you know, those people sure sound like Jesus. Those people sure act like Jesus. Those people sure live like Jesus. They are consumed with Jesus. They are intoxicated with Jesus. They have to tell others about Jesus. Some of you will be familiar with something you can locate on YouTube. Uh, it is a self-interview with the magician Penn Gillette. Some of you will be familiar with the, uh, sh- uh, the, the, the magician show, the, the Penn and, uh, uh, Teller show. Well, back uh, a few months ago, uh, Penn Gillette did a self-interview. And he does a self-interview after having had an encounter after one of his shows with a Gideon who walked up and placed in his hand a Gideon's Bible. Now, you need to understand something. Penn Jillette is a very hostile atheist, a very outspoken atheist. And yet he says that he was, um, he was taken back by this encounter because unlike many Christians, this man was kind, this man was gracious, He said, clearly, this man cared for my soul. And by the way, as of this morning, 395,342 people have viewed that YouTube clip. Well, it's a very interesting thing to watch and to listen to. But one thing in particular stood out to me, and I just exerted a, a section of what he says as he's reflecting upon the fact that this man cared enough to give him a Bible and express that he was concerned about his soul. And here's what the atheist Penn Gillette said, and I quote, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I've always thought that. The atheist has it right. He understands what far too many Christians don't understand. There comes a point where we don't mind the social awkwardness because the stakes are so very, very, very high. I am convinced of this. Being a Christ-centered people will inspire us and it will embolden us. It will also humble us and it will radically alter us. As I have, again, studied our denomination very intently over the last several years and now over the last six months done a massive amount of research, 
I believe a number of things need to happen. I believe we need God to strip us of our pride. I believe we need God to destroy our selfish ambitions. I believe we need God to take down our petty agendas and bring to an end our myopic territorialism and turfism. He needs to extinguish sinful self-interest that has lost sight of what really does matter. You see, being a Christ-centered people will remind us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It will also remind us that Jesus does not need us to do his work. No, we need him to do his work. Now, I love what the preacher C.T. Studd said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And a great commission people will be focused on the nation's And they will be Christ-centered in all that they do. But number three, we will be gospel-saturated in all that we do as well. Verse 19 and verse 20. Paul says that God had worked in many signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel. In verses 16 through 29, Paul mentions the gospel no less than four times. He calls it the gospel of God in verse 16. He calls it the gospel of Christ in verse 19 and verse 29. Of course, back in chapter 1 and verse 16, he has made it very clear. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And Paul acknowledges that this gospel was accompanied by mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul would be quick to say the power is not in me. The power is in the gospel. So another question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? There are many out there in our denomination that are saying uh, everybody knows what the gospel is. I would submit most don't know what the gospel is. I would submit agreeing with Billy Graham that half of our churches are probably filled every Sunday with unregenerates who've never understood and never believed or embraced the gospel. I'm convinced that our churches in particular, but churches across America, are awash in gospel confusion, and they don't know what the gospel is. Back uh, in the spring... Christianity Today invited Rob Bell, the author of Velvet Velvet Elvis and Sex God, to uh, tweet the gospel. If he were going to use Twitter and tweet the gospel, what would he do? What what would he write? What would he say? Well, as you're about to see, uh, he violated the 140 character count that you get when you tweet a message. But more than that, he absolutely mauled the gospel. Here's Rob Bell's attempt to tweet the gospel, quote, I would say that history is headed somewhere. The thousands of little ways in which you are tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. And the Christian story is that a tomb is empty and a movement has actually begun that has been present in a sense all along in creation. And all those times when your cynicism was at odds with an impulse within you that said that this little thing might be about something bigger, those tiny little slivers may in fact be connected to something really, really big. In my notes, so that I don't miss it, I have the word, huh? 
What? That's good news. Well, I don't like you picking on him. I don't like him getting the gospel wrong. Let me say it one more time. I don't like him getting the gospel wrong. There's no blood there. There's no atonement there. There's no cross there. There's no gospel there. Then you add to that the prosperity gospel. You add to that the social gospel. You add what some are now calling the new gospel. I do agree with Rick Warren. You put anything in front of the word gospel and you'll lose the gospel. It's just the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. So you say, all right, if you were given the assignment to tweet the gospel, what would you come up with? Well, I'm not all that creative. I'll just use the Bible. And here's what I would come up with. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus died and paid the full penalty of sin, rose from the dead and saves all who repent of sin and trust him. I would argue that that's true to the word. It is the good news that King Jesus died and paid the full penalty of sin, rose from the dead and saves all who repent of sin and trust him. You see, the gospel is good news at the beginning of our Christian experience. The gospel is the good news that sustains us through our Christian experience. And our, the gospel is the good news that gets us to the end of our Christian experience. Your Christian life, my Christian life, our churches need to be gospel saturated from beginning to end. But tragically, we're not there, aren't we? And so many people believe something along the lines of the gospel on the front end. But then they quickly jump into legalism for the rest of it. And no wonder they live impotent unfulfilled, joyless lives. No one has been more helpful to me here than Tim Keller. And I think Tim Keller indeed has given us insight into the fact that the gospel is the only cure for the false religion, uh, the false gospel of religion. And so Tim Keller puts it forth in a number of antitheses. And here's how Tim Keller puts it. It's very helpful to me. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by Christ. But the gospel says, I'm accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey so that God will love me. But the gospel said, God loves me and so I obey. Religion says, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. But the gospel says, motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. But the gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight and resemble Him. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I am not living up to my standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. But the gospel says my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful And yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad. He had to die for me. And I am so loved. He was glad to die for me. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace. I am what I am. I say it this way. The gospel teaches us that the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything. And the person who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. 
And we need to be a Christ-centered people and a gospel-saturated people in all that we do. Number four, we will be passionate for the unreached peoples of the world. Paul gets in our business here. He's going to hit us right between the eyes and challenge us to radically rethink our priorities, our agendas, uh, our lifestyles. See, unlike many of us, Paul was not guilty of dreaming too small. Paul knew that he served a great God who could do great things if we would simply be available. He says in verse 19, I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Illyricum is modern day Albania and Yugoslavia. Those who study things like this tell us that Paul spent at least four, uh, went at least 1400 miles around that part of the world to get the gospel to all of those places. He says in verse 20, it's his aim to preach the gospel where Christ was not named. He says in verse 21 that he has a biblical and theological warrant for this based upon the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, he basically argues this way, as God's son, the suffering servant of the Lord served to get the gospel to those who had not heard. That is what I'm going to do too. And then verse 23, mark this verse. Paul says, because of all of this, because of this theological conviction, he says an amazing thing, quote, I no longer have a place in these parts. The the Holman Christian Bible says, I no longer have any work to do in these provinces. Paul, time out. Are you telling us every single person has heard the gospel? No. Are you telling us that all the churches that need to be planted have been planted? No. Well, Well, Paul, what are you saying? And Paul would say, what I'm saying is this. The gospel is here now, but it's not everywhere. And it is the everywheres that consume me. It is the everywheres that drive me. It is the places that have not heard that I'm going to spend my life and give my energy. Tom Schreiner, the wonderful New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary, says this of Paul concerning his missiology and his missiological strategy. Paul's strategy was apparently to plant churches in key cities. And from there, co-workers would fan out and evangelize smaller towns like Epaphras in Colossians. He believed that his foundation work was completed in this region. And thus he planned to further the work in areas where Gentile churches were not planted. In other words, Paul was convinced once more that masses of lost people were dying and going to hell with no possibility of being saved apart from the gospel. Let me say it one more time. Masses of people are dying and going to hell with no possibility of being saved because there's no one there to tell them about Jesus. And I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters, by our lack of urgency... One of two things is true. Either, number one, we're all a bunch of closet universalists, believing eventually God's going to let them all in. Or worse than that, we believe that people who die without Jesus do die and go to hell, and we just don't care. By the way we spend our money, by the way we spend our time, By the way we prioritize our lives, I really can't come to any other conclusion. And once more, who are the ones that are the most guilty in this area? Men. Men. Men are the worst spiritual criminals when it comes to this particular area. You say, you come to this all the time. I'm going to come to this till the day I die. 
until the little boys sit down and the men stand up. But when that happens, I'll quit. I'll quit picking at you. I'll quit fussing at you. Last June, as I was preparing to go and speak at the Southern Baptist Convention, I called the IMB and I said, I'm just curious. I just like a little data. When it comes to our journeyman program, journeyman program, you graduate from college, you're not married, two years on the mission field, not five, not ten, not twenty, just two years on the mission field serving Jesus as a single. I'm just curious, how many journeymen do we have and how many girls versus guys do we have? So a couple of days later, I get a phone call back. And here's what I learned from the International Mission Board. We had at June of last year, 331 journey girls serving the Lord and only 126 journey men. That means there are more than two and a half times the number of women to men serving our Lord around the world as journeymen. It gets worse than that. West Africa, most difficult region for us to get people. We've got 50 journeymen serving there today. 48 are girls, two are guys. And again, I ask myself, but I ask you as well, guys, what are we not doing in our churches? Those of you who are pastors, I'm putting this on you. What are we not doing to inspire our young men to want to do something great for King Jesus? To do something that really matters. To do something that has eternal significance. This is not a new problem. It's always plagued the church. Lottie Moon, when she was on the mission field in China, sometimes is accused of stepping outside of her proper calling and preaching the gospel. Well, as she says in her letters, if there's no man here to preach the gospel, then who is to preach the gospel? And I will not sit and condemn them to hell simply because a man is not here. But she made this statement in one of her letters back to Virginia Baptist, quote, I am trying honestly to do the work that could fill the hands of three or four women. And in addition, must be must be do much work that ought to be done by young men. I must add that the work is suffering and will continue to suffer for want of a man living on the spot. And I want to tell you something, men. I, I pray for you. I do. And I pray that God haunts you. I pray that God gives you nightmares. I pray that God torments you until you rethink what it means to radically live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and have a heart for the nations. John Falconer said it this way. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And the great Moravian Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf said it this way. I have but one passion. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. And we must be passionate for the unreached peoples of the world. Finally, we will also help those whom God sends to the hard places. Paul knew that being a Great Commission people would involve praying, giving, and sending. And unless you misunderstand me, hear me well. I understand that not everyone is called by God to go to nations in a faraway place. I think more are called than are going. But I don't believe that God calls everyone to go to faraway locations. But he calls everyone to pray. He calls everyone to give. He calls everyone to be involved in supporting missionaries, evangelists, and church planners to get the gospel to the nation. So Paul says in verse 24, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and, look at this now, to be helped on my way there by you. 
In other words, Paul said, look, if you can provide personnel, that'll be great. If you will provide financial resources, which you certainly can, that'll be great. And according to church tradition, they did provide, and Paul did make his way to Spain and evangelize another unreached people group. Now, what will it take? Let me get specific, because we're going to move in just a moment to putting feet to our faith and taking an offering today for Lottie Moon. What would it take in terms of giving for us to reach the underserved in America and the unreached of the nations? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to require repentance. Just Repentance. And a new radical lifestyle and orientation. Oswald Smith said it this way. If God wills the evangelization of the world and you refuse to support missions, then you are opposed to the will of God. Something for all of us to think about today. Recently, there was a article written by Bob Allen that was a commentary on a released uh, a research report recently released by a group called uh, Empty Tomb Inc. Empty Tomb Inc. Incorporated studies the giving patterns of uh, various denominations in America, and they used as a test case the Southern Baptist Convention. And so listen, it'll be up on the screen as I read it. Listen to what he wrote in this article, and I quote, A Christian organization that tracks giving to religious groups says other denominations will be watching this year's Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which funds overseas missionaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. Empty Tomb Incorporated, a research and service organization based in Champaign, Illinois, says the nation's second largest religious body is approaching, quote, a critical choice point in December 2009. The book cites the SBC as a case study describing a denomination with a, quote, clearly stated goal, close quote, for achieving the 2,000-year-old mission of preaching the Christian gospel to all people groups, but lacking an adequate funding plan for meeting that goal. The research calculates that by increasing their donations to the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board's upcoming Lottie Moon Christmas offering by an average of $7 per member, the denomination would be able to raise enough money to field an additional 2,800 missionaries. The IMB says it needs to evangelize every global people group in evangelism. Researchers say the difference between the SBC and many other denominations and multi-denominational groups is that Southern Baptists have a large, at-scale, clearly stated goal around which congregations can rally. The question, they say, is will Southern Baptists put their donations where their stated goal is? Will they seize the present opportunity to put feet on the gospel and set a standard for other denominations to follow? The article concludes, the eyes of the nation are on the Southern Baptist. All right. What are the cold, hard facts when it comes to the way we as God's people give today? More than one in four American Protestants give nothing to the work of the church. The median annual giving for a Christian is 2.6% of their annual income. Only 27% of evangelicals give away 10% or more of their income. About 5% of Christians provide 60% of 
of the money to churches and religious groups. Twenty percent of all Christians account for 86 percent of all giving. Ten percent of those who claim to be an evangelical and 33 percent of those who call themselves fundamentalists give nothing. What do you give? What do you give? I learned to my heart when I was in seminary that I had classmates that gave nothing to the work of the Lord. You say, what did you give? I've always gave 10% or more. Always. From the time I got my life right with God at the age of 20, when I went home after hearing my pastor preach a message on tithing, and I said to my mother, Mother, Mom, what is tithing? I didn't know. I was that disconnected, you know. But I said, what's tithing? She said, 10% of your income. I said, 10%. She said, 10%. I said, God wants 10%. God wants 10%. So I was working for Mrs. Filbert's. They make margin and mayonnaise. And I was working part-time, and I made $87 a week. And so I went over to got a sheet of paper. I was a mathematical genius. And I put down 87 times .10, which equals $8.70. And I began to give the Lord $8.70. Not $8.71, not $8.69, $8.70. That's what it meant to be an obedient Christian. Then our pastor came along about a year later and said, you know, we can also make what he called free will offerings. I asked, so I came on. I said, what's a free will offering? He said, what's what you give above a tithe? So you can give above a tie. You can give above a tie. How much can you give? Give whatever you want. Well, I didn't have much money, but I had a car. So I sold my car. Gave the whole thing to the Lord. I'm not saying it to be patted on the back. I'm just telling you that when I got right with Jesus, I just wanted to give. And the fact is, for 31 years, my wife and I have never, ever, ever, ever given less than 10% of our income to the work of the Lord. Now that God's blessed us, we have less responsibility. We give more and more and more and more. And we should. And so should you. Out of gratitude for what he has done for you. Well, Christian Smith, a sociologist in his book, Passing the Plate, said this. If committed Christians in the United States would just give 10% of their after-tax income, not more than 10%, just 10%, that would provide an extra $46 billion per year of resources with which to fund needs and priorities. In other words, what could happen if committed Christians just gave 10% of their income to the work of the Lord? Well, here's what he said. We could indeed fund 150,000 new indigenous missionaries and pastors in nations most close to foreign religious workers. We could triple the resources being spent by all Christians on Bible translating, printing, and distribution to provide Bibles in the native languages of the 2,737 remaining people groups currently without Bible translations. We could quadruple the total resources being spent by all Christians globally on missions to evangelize the unevangelized world. We could eradicate polio worldwide. We could fund a million new clean water, clear water, clean water projects, uh, Per year in the poorest nations, 25% of the world's population still drink unsafe water. We could prevent and treat malaria worldwide. We could provide food, clothing, and shelter to all 6.5 million current refugees in all of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. We could sponsor 20 million needy children worldwide, providing them food, education, and health care. We could quadruple global Christian medicinal mission work. The facts are plain, brothers and sisters, and the facts indict us. The personnel is here. The resources are here. The question is, what will we do? This semester, I preached at the very beginning, after a few weeks of being at home over my illness. I preached a message on a man named James Frazier. And at the 
beginning of the message, I read something from a track that moved him to leave the comforts of London and to take the gospel to the Lysu people group in western China. Again, the words haunt me. Consider them. A command has been given, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously, for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as, of course, he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give. Of one thing I am certain, that most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we should be wholly ashamed of then. Lost people matter to God. They must also matter to us. Oswald Chambers said it well. We talk of the second coming when half the world has never heard of the first. And I agree with Keith Green. This generation of Christians, that's us, is responsible for this generation of souls on the earth. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. The Great Commission is a command to be obeyed. It is time God's people, in particular Southern Baptist, in particular you and me, got obedient. God, I want to ask you to come forward at this time because we're going to put feet to our faith this morning. We're going to take a Lottie Moon Christmas offering. As you know, I simply encourage you to seek the Lord and then give as the Lord leads. For some of you, that may mean very little. That's okay. It's all you have. For some of you, it may mean a lot because God has blessed you more abundantly. But the fact of the matter is, with half of the world's population still in desperate need of the gospel, we need to pray. We need to give. And so today, we're going to give and thank God that we have the honor and the privilege of giving to his great work. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in prayer, thanking you for the fact that we can indeed be a great commissioned people joining hands with you to get the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And Lord, I know I beat this drum a lot. But Lord, I see it in your word. And if your son came to seek and to save that which is lost, how can we be satisfied with doing anything less? So Lord, burden my heart. Burn the hearts of my brothers and sisters. May we pray fervently for the salvation of the nations. May we consider, do I need to go? And Lord, this morning, may we each give as you lead and direct. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.